Lord, as exciting as it is to come and to hear your word, to study your word and to learn more about Christ. So I ask this morning that you would quicken our hearts towards Jesus more today than it was yesterday. Cause us to be excited for the gospel. Use the words preached this morning to encourage the hearts of the believer and to draw the hearts of the unbeliever. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was younger, I think I may have shared the story once before, but when I was younger, I had an imaginary friend, and I was very young, probably four or five, and my friend's name was John Henry. <clears throat> I don't know where I got that name. It doesn't matter. Uh, John Henry was my best buddy, so much so that mom and dad, in their goodness, uh, humored me and would even go as far as to set a place at the table for John Henry. John Henry was always with me. I don't know when I lost John Henry, but he's no longer here. Uh, Betty does not set a plate at the table for John Henry. Uh, but I lost John Henry. But what I'm trying to drive at is the ability for we humans to use our imaginations, because I'm going to ask you to use yours this morning. I'm going to ask you to take your imagination, even we as adults, and channel your inner John Henry with me, and I want you to go back in time. And I want you to go back way past the Reformation, way past even when Jesus was born. I want you to go back another 1,500 years earlier than that, so some 3,500 years ago, and you're living in a tent. You're a Hebrew. And you have seen, collectively, more phenomenal, miraculous things than any one generation in human history ever has. You have seen with your own eyes, you're probably in your mid-twenties, maybe a little older, you've got a couple small children, and you have seen with your own eyes God flick the Ten Commandments on the people of Egypt, for you too were a slave. You were in Egypt and you made bread, or you made bricks out of straw. You saw the Nile turn to blood. You also got to walk out of Egypt and see the look on those Egyptians' faces as they were glad to have you go. They handed you gold as a way to enrich you as you left. You marched out across the desert and you literally saw and felt the dry seabed of the Dead Sea as you crossed it, Red Sea as you crossed it. What a miraculous feeling you had as you saw the walls of water on both sides. You came out the other side and you saw, again with your own eyes, God defeat the most powerful army in the world simply by releasing the waters back and taking the whole army simply by drowning them. You never lifted a finger. You have drank water from a rock. You daily eat bread that shows up unannounced in the morning. You have eaten quail that you did not hunt that flies into your nets. You've actually seen with your own eyes the real Ten Commandments. You stood at the base of the holy mountain and heard the voice of God as it rumbled. It frightened you. You saw the lightning and the thunder as God was on that mountain. It scared you. But you have seen all of this. And this morning, you're about to see yet another event that no one else will ever see. And that is the first time ever that God will show his people that their sins are forgiven, called the Day of Atonement. 
This is the most holy day of the calendar year, this new calendar year that God instituted after he gave his law. And this is the first time you'll ever see it as the high priest Aaron performs a ceremony. You've been told by your friends, the Levites, the word was spread throughout the camp, that this is the highest and holiest day of the year. You were to begin a required fast the night before. You've not eaten as you woke up this morning. Your children haven't eaten. No one in your family has. It's so serious, they told you that if you failed to follow the instructions, it would be the death penalty. It was that important. This morning you woke up, and you wanted to get a front row seat at the tabernacle to see this new day, this day of atonement. You get up, you take your children, you begin to head towards the eastern gate, the only way into the tabernacle. You want to get there early. And as you come around the corner and sit down, to sit down, you realize you're not the only one that had this idea. There's already thousands of people gathered around the front gates. There's a small hill there, which is good. So you take a seat on the hill with thousands and thousands of other Hebrews as they're pouring in to see this Day of Atonement for the first time. But something looks rather unusual. As you look down in the tabernacle, it's dead still. Normally, there's all sorts of hustle and bustle going on. For every day, there's sacrifices being made, even on the Sabbath. But not today. It's empty. That's highly unusual. You look off to the right, and you begin to see a man coming. He's dressed like an ordinary priest. Looks a little unusual. And he's pulling behind him, with him, a ram and a bull. And as he gets closer, because you still have at least a decent seat, you can see that's Aaron, the high priest. However, he's not dressed as he normally is. Because normally he's dressed very opulently. He has a big breastplate that goes over it. has all the different jewels representing the different tribes of Israel. He's not wearing that. He's dressed very plainly. And he comes up the front of the eastern gate right in front of you with this bull and this ram. And he turns around and he waves, gives a motion, and here comes a Levite bringing two small goats behind. And as the Levite comes up, you see now four animals in front of you. Aaron motions for the Levite, he brings another one, and they come over and they grab a hold of that bull. And they hold the bull and restrain him. And Aaron himself, which is highly unusual, Aaron himself pulls out a dagger and pierces the throat of that bull, almost killing it instantly takes a bull, puts it underneath the bull as he bleeds, and captures that blood. He does the same for the ram. And then Aaron looks at the crowd and turns and takes that bull of blood and begins to walk in the tabernacle area. You're in that tabernacle many times yourself, so you kind of feel the the dirt as he walks. You know where he's headed. But again, it's empty. He walks over to the altar, which is still burning from the morning's Sabbath sacrifices, he takes a golden censer, and he reaches down with some tongs, he puts some very hot coals in that censer, and he grabs some incense, some fragrance. And with that incense and that bowl in hand, Aaron begins to walk towards the holy place, that tent of uh, the inner tent. You have never been in there. For many times already, you've walked inside the open tabernacle, you've seen the altar, you've been there. You're allowed in that area. But you're not allowed to go where Aaron's about to go. That's the tent, the special tent, the holy place. Inside that is the Ark of the Covenant, and even a more secure place. For this is the one day Aaron is allowed to go into the most holy place. And you're wondering, as Aaron walks towards that holy place, that holy tent, what is he thinking? Because Aaron is about to pull back the curtain and go into that holy place at the very place and walk through. It's a small place, only 30 feet long, where his two boys 
just died a few weeks ago. He's going to walk across that same space. For they brought what was called strange fire into that holy place, and God killed him on the spot. Not only did he kill him on the spot, he refused to let Aaron grieve. It was such an egregious sin. Aaron was not allowed to grieve for those two boys. Aaron's about to walk in that same spot. But even more you wonder, what's Aaron thinking? Because he's about to take his life as his hands to pull back that curtain and go in the Ark of the Covenant. And Aaron is an idol worshiper. For you yourself gave some of that gold the Egyptians gave you. And you handed it to Aaron personally out in the desert as Aaron crafted that golden calf. Aaron is an idol worshiper. You're an idol worshiper. And Aaron is about to go into the holy place. What is on his mind? And Aaron takes that bowl and that censer and he actually disappears. And you can't see now. What you can't see is what happens inside. Aaron will go in and he'll walk right straight back. And when he gets to the curtain, and behind that curtain is the Ark of the Covenant, the very place where God resides amongst his people, he's got to be at least slightly nervous. For it's very specific what he's to do. Aaron will take that censer and he'll pull back the curtain and he'll put the censer with the fragrance in there and set it inside and let it fill the small area full of smoke. God told him that's for his protection. Because as he steps inside, if he actually sees God dwelling above the ark, he'll die. I'm sure Aaron takes this precaution very carefully because his boys died by not following these directions properly. Not these, but other directions properly. Aaron puts that censer in and lets it fill. He then reaches and pulls back the curtain, and for one time only, once a year now, he will step inside. He takes that bowl of blood that he sacrificed, and he puts his finger in, dips it, and flicks blood upon the altar, and he only does it seven times. He's done. He turns around, pulls back the curtain, and begins to head out. That was just for Aaron and his family. For Aaron has to make atonement for his sins before he can become the high priest for the people. Aaron will then walk back out. As he comes out of the curtain, you can hear the sighs of relief all across your fellow Hebrews as Aaron's alive. Because they couldn't tell. Aaron comes back out, sets a censer by the altar, and he comes back out to the two goats. He walks over and he stands over top the two goats, and he pulls out the lots. And he shakes his hand, he casts the lots. And he looks down, and he sees which one God has selected for the sacrifice, and which one God has selected not. He motions to the Levite to take the one away, leaving only the one to be sacrificed. Again, he asks for help from the Levite to restrain the animal. He again takes the dagger out, and he pierces the neck of that goat. Again, he uses the second bowl, and he catches the blood. This is for you. This is the sacrifice for your atonement. Aaron again takes the blood of the bull and he heads back in. He will go over to the altar and make sure he's got plenty of hot coals for incense to make sure there's lots of smoke. And again, he heads right back in the same place. He will walk over the same path. He'll get to the very back. He'll pull back that curtain. He'll insert the incense or the, uh, the censer and again, Fill the holy place with smoke so as he would not die. He steps in, and again, he takes that bowl. He'll take a finger, he'll put it in and dip it. 
And they begin seven times to sprinkle the front of the altar and the base of the altar with that blood, that sacrifice. He's still alive. He'll turn around, he'll close that curtain, never to be opened again for another year. Only this time he does something different that you can't see. He will then take that blood, and there's three artifacts inside the most holy place. There is the altar of incense. He'll take, and he'll also flick blood on the altar. There is the golden lampstand. He'll take blood, and he'll flick it on the golden lampstand. And then there's the table of showbread, which has bread and wine on it. It's there uh, daily. He'll also take blood and flick it on that. And then as he steps out, he has to go back to the altar, and he'll do the same thing to the altar. For God requires... Everything has atonement for it, including the cleansing of the objects nearest to him. When he's done with that, he'll come back out, and the emotions for that second goat to be brought back over. The Levite will bring the goat over, and Aaron will stand over top of that goat, and he'll take his hands, and he'll place them on the head of that goat, and he'll begin to pray, for he's confessing the sins of the people. You're listening closely because Aaron's making no secrets. He's praying loudly as he can. You hear him pray for forgiveness for idol worship. You hear him pray for forgiveness for the sins of the people, that they didn't love God as they should. They didn't love their neighbor as they should. And you've heard him pray for your sin specifically. Aaron then gives a nod, and a man you've not seen before comes up and takes that goat and begins to lead him way out in the desert. Now, next Sunday, we'll pick this up where we left off and what happens to that goat. This morning, we're going to concentrate strictly on what happened today with the first goat. And what happened, uh, as we've talked to or talked about this morning, just the first one. But I'm sure at the end of that ceremony, that when it was all done, Aaron would have come out and stood in front of the people and raised his hands and gave them the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's how God required that Aaron adjourn the assemblies. And at that point in time, the ceremony is over and you would head back to your tent, seeing with your own eyes the gracious acts of God, being reminded that your sins have been atoned for. The word atonement is something that is somewhat been taken over by the secular society, but not totally. Atonement is a word that we hear only in areas of reparations, to make things right. But you know, without sin, there would be no need for the word atonement. They're that much linked together. I found a common definition for atonement saying something that makes up for an offense or an injury. I think that's fair, and that's how you would hear in the, in the uh, culture today. He needs to atone for that fumble. You'll hear that in football. He has to atone for that, making something right. But that's not the real definition. I found this one, and to be honest, I, I can't remember where I found it, but I give credit. The return to a state of love and harmony between God and man through the death of Jesus Christ. That is a good definition of atonement. The return of love and harmony between God and man because of the death of Jesus Christ. It is true that all scripture, all scripture, from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, is in essence the story of Jesus. But intertwined, intertwined through all of that is also the story of the atonement, of redemption. Of redemption coming, redemption had, redemption explained. 
It's all intertwined together. The concept of atonement is everywhere. Even at the Garden of Eden, as, the, as Adam and Eve tried to find a way for atonement themselves to become with God again by using fig leaves, God came back and said no. He brought for them skins of animals, telling them that death had to come and blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. It starts in the garden, and we see it all throughout Scripture. But can you imagine if you're the two on the road to Emmaus just after Jesus passes or is resurrected and not knowing you're about to get a Bible lesson from Jesus? And the Scriptures say, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said concerning himself. He starts with Genesis and gives these two a Bible lesson about him and what it says about him. I can only imagine that when he gave that lesson, he used our, one of our uh, lessons, he would used our text this morning of Leviticus chapter 16. For Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, has got to be the most beautiful and easily understood gospel presentation of the Old Testament. There is so much gospel in what you just heard. Instead of reading the chapter to you, I just narrated it to you instead. What we have heard today about the Day of Atonement is a beautiful depiction of the gospel, wrapped up in, of all places, the book of Leviticus, which is solely responsible for killing many a Bible-reading plan. But yet, in the middle, dead in the middle of all that law and regulation, we find the gospel. So this morning, we're going to take just a quick look at some of the key things that we heard this morning covering this special day, this Day of Atonement. Almost all of it, well, that's not true, all of it, will revolve around one key central point, which is the sovereignty of God in the atonement of man. It all revolves around that. We'll approach it from someone of that reporter's perspective, the who, what, when, where, why kind of a concept. But the first thing we're going to talk about is how God was sovereign over who receives the atonement. I have to say, we here at Zion Reformed are what's called, our Zion Reformed is what's called Reformed Theology. And at the core of Reformed Theology, we always end up talking about the letter L. Because central to Reformed Theology is this thing called Calvinism. Now, you don't have to be a Calvinist to belong to Zion Reformed Church. You just have to be a believer. But the theology is rooted in Reformed Theology, which has its core called Calvinism. Ironically, Calvin had nothing to do with these five points. They were crafted years after he died, but they're attributed the name Calvinism. But there are five points, which are actually rebuttals to five points that began even earlier in opposition to the Reformed doctrines that came out in the Reformation. However, the acrostic Calvinism is known by is called TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity of man, unconditional election, limited atonement, Irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. Those five key points summarize Calvinism, and it's always the L that people have problems with. You'll hear people say, I'm a five-point Calvinist. That means they embrace all five points. But oftentimes, you'll hear people say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Guarantee you, if that's the case, it's the L they have problems with. It's the limited atonement. So it's pretty difficult for us to talk about atonement and not at least address this off the bat. Limited atonement. There are two basic views of what happened with Jesus at the cross. And let me point out here as we go, 
You will hear, in, in much of what we talked about this morning, Jesus everywhere. Feel free to let your mind wander on, that's Jesus, when I hear that. That, is, that represents Jesus. Look for Jesus throughout this morning in so many different ways. Don't wait for me at the end to tell you about it. I can tell you right now, he's everywhere in the story. Uh, and and don't, be, uh, don't be afraid to let your mind find him as we speak. However, it's the L that have problems with limited atonement. There's two general views on the atonement. First is what's called the unlimited atonement or universal atonement, which is simply this. That when Jesus came to die on the cross, he died and he made it available. He made it possible for all those who believe to have salvation. When you think about that, it doesn't sound wrong. That sounds actually about right. That when God came, he made it, Jesus came and died. His death on the cross made salvation available for any who believe. That would be the unlimited atonement. The reform view is that the atonement is limited. Here's how uh, John Piper put it. The atonement of Christ is sufficient for all humans and effective for those who trust him. It is not limited in its worth or its sufficiency to save all who believe, but the full saving effectiveness of the atonement that Jesus accomplished is limited to those that saving effect was prepared. In essence, when Jesus came, he came with a very specific view when he went to the cross on who was going to receive that atonement. He had you and I in mind as he offered himself up a a sacrifice. There is a very distinct difference. For in one way, Jesus doesn't actually save anyone. He just makes it possible. In the Reformed view, Jesus actually accomplishes redemption. When Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, it indeed is finished. There is a significant difference between those two. We don't have time. It would be great for maybe a Sunday school lesson, but I'll just give you a few texts to ponder on this and we'll move on. Think of Matthew one we We've heard this many, many times. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and listen, and listen with a new ear, for he will save his people from their sins. A redeemer who actually redeems. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.11. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He actually made him to be sin for us. Again, very specific in mind. And lastly, in Isaiah 53, again, we've heard this many, many times, but listen to it with a different ear. For we, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You really only have two options with that verse. Either Jesus took the penalty for everyone because God laid on him the iniquities of us all and therefore everyone is saved or the all refers to all his sheep. There are really only two options with that verse. We have a Redeemer who actually redeems 
doesn't just make it possible, but actually finishes something that he starts. Today's Day of Atonement very much supports that second view because the Day of Atonement was a secret. It was out in the desert. The Egyptians didn't see it. The Canaanites didn't see it. God could have had this ceremony take place in front of all the Egyptians, invite them to see what a great God he is. He waits and specifically has Aaron perform the service to tell them your sins, your sins, the ones that are at the tabernacle, God's people will be atoned for. So God is sovereign in who receives the atonement for whom it is given. But God was also sovereign over who makes the atonement and what they bring. Just think about this. One time a year, just once, God said, I will entertain one man in my presence. They didn't get to choose which day it was. God was very clear on the seventh day, the tenth day of the seventh month, excuse me. He was very clear. Only one day, one time, will I entertain one man to come. Not only will I entertain the one man to come, I'm going to tell you exactly what he's going to wear, and he won't be opulent, because he's come in my presence. He will come plain. He'll tell you that here's what he's going to bring. And not only will I tell you what he's going to bring, I'm going to choose the goat of which he's going to bring. I will dictate how the goat will be sacrificed. He's in total control of exactly how the atonement is brought to him. It's on his terms, it's in his way, under his circumstances. Anything else is less intolerable. Just think if Aaron would have won in on the 11th day. Aaron would have been dead. Just think if Aaron would have taken his finger and sprinkled it eight times. Not seven, not six, right? What if he just sprinkled it eight times? People became so, over time, so afraid that they would actually tie a rope, this is not from scripture, this is actually from extra scripture documents, around the high priest's ankle, so that just in case he went in, if he messed something up, they could pull him back out. They were so afraid of what would happen. As time went on, this Day of Atonement, again they became so afraid, that, again, extra biblical literature of the the Hebrew writings, that for a week, the priest would practice this ritual, Day and night, and the last day before the Day of Atonement, he would stay up all night practicing over and over, and the Levites and priests that helped him, anytime he started to fall asleep, would put his feet on on cold rocks to wake him up, to make sure he had this down to his science. God was that specific on how the atonement was to be brought. There was no other way except God's way. He was also specific on how it was to be made in a different way. Think about this. Doesn't it seem a little redundant? Not to sound irreverent, but doesn't that seem a little redundant? Because every day, 364 other days of the year, there's sacrifices being made at the temple. They see the blood shed every day. Even on the Sabbath, there are sacrifices. But six days out of the week, they themselves bring the sacrifice. They themselves are the ones that actually have to slay the animal. There is blood and the smell of burning flesh every day in the camp. Didn't they already get it? Didn't they already understand? Okay, I get it. Blood has to be shed. 
But yet God says on the special day, no, no, I'm going to show you. And he puts them all out. I think this is one of the great points of this um, festival. Is as they sat outside and watched, God drove this point home. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. For the goats that they brought, and the pigeons that they brought, and the bulls, and the heifers, and the doves that they all brought and sacrificed, that blood made it as far as the altar, but it was never sufficient to be able to make it into the holy place. There is no goat that you and I have that's ever enough. We cannot satisfy the wrath of God on our own. We simply can't. Unless they forget that this has nothing to do with them and everything to do with God, God sets them outside and makes a huge stark contrast to their day, to their year and says, you just sit back and you watch. This is how the atonement is to be applied. David understood this. David said in Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, now remember he wrote this in the Old Testament times. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. What was happening there in this great drama, this play being played out, is the Israelites, as they bring their sacrifices, are only bringing their repentant hearts And my friends, the lesson for us is the same. Now, hear what I'm going to say, and and, and don't flip out too quickly. Your repentant heart will never save you. Feeling sorry about your sins is simply not enough. We need the atonement from which God prescribes, brought to him in the way God requires By the man, God demands bring it. It's the atonement that saves you and saves me. However, they go together. For God said, year after year, I will always be faithful. I will always show you I have forgiven your sins. You have to repent. But when you repent, I am faithful. I will always forgive you. The Westminster Confession says it this way. It's old English, but just listen closely how Westminster Confession defines repentance and our role. Although repentance is not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. You have to come, and the Israelites had to come with a broken and contrite heart. We call that repentance. They had to come with their repentant heart. If they just brought a goat with absolutely no thought of what was happening, it didn't matter. It was useless. But when they come with the repentant heart, as you and I, when we repent, we come with the repentant heart, The atonement is applied to us because God required it a certain specific way and applies it to us. That certain specific way was Jesus. 
It's the blood of Jesus that atones for us, not our repentant heart. Do you follow what I'm saying there? Repentance does not save you. Feeling sorry does not save you. But it does cause forgiveness because the blood of Jesus will be applied because God is faithful. There was always a day of atonement. As we conclude, you can see Jesus is everywhere in this passage. He's the high priest. He's the bull. He's the ram. He's the sacrificial goats. He's the altar. Actually, he's the tabernacle himself. Everything about the tabernacle, it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's gospel everywhere. But I'm going to ask you to consider one more way that we see Jesus this morning as we conclude. For as, as you and I would never have been allowed into that holy, the holy place, that inner tent, let alone the holiest of holies, there was a curtain there that separated the, the Ark of the Covenant where God rested from man himself. It's called the veil. That veil is the most significant piece of fabric in human history. Because it demonstrated for all time man's inability to come to God by himself. You couldn't go past that veil. Otherwise, death was upon you. That veil symbolizes Jesus. How do I know? Because the writer of Hebrews made it perfectly clear. So listen to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read it to you. Verse 19 for just a couple verses. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about that veil. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." When Jesus hung on the cross as our great high priest, the the author of Hebrews presents it as he actually walked into the real Holy of Holies in heaven, carrying his blood as a sacrifice, and says, it is finished. And he hands his blood as the actual sacrifice. Something remarkable and a historical fact occurred. Inside Herod's temple, there is a curtain that's 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide and 4 inches thick in the temple, rips down the middle from top to bottom, signifying in as clear a message as possible, today is a new day. For by doing so, by Jesus' flesh being broken for us, the veil, which the author of Hebrews says very clearly, is Jesus' flesh is ripped apart and you and I, now have access directly to the Holy of Holies ourselves. It is a day that is unlike any other, the day Jesus died. And that veil was torn. Can you imagine what it would have been like in the days of the Hebrew for someone to walk in and just tear apart the, the curtains and say to everyone, look, the Ark of the Covenant. That would have been panic, and rightfully so. Jesus walked in and ripped that veil and sat down next to God the Father and said, it's finished. We now have access to the Holy of Holies ourselves because of the work that Jesus performed. 
He sits there interceding for us with his blood at all times. That is the, the miracle of the crucifixion. But notice the result in Hebrews 10 of this. I'll read it again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy place. They didn't have that then. By the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, listen to the result of that. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I'm confident in a room even this size that there are some of us, there are some of you, and I say us, that struggle with a full heart of assurance of faith. It is common for people to struggle with their salvation, to not be confident about it. This passage tells us, let that go. This passage says to us, because Jesus tore that veil, because he acts as our high priest, you can have a full assurance of your salvation. The writer even says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For years, I struggled with this very thing myself. I would hear an evangelist come to our church and start pounding away from the pulpit, hellfire and brimstone about confession and what had to happen in repentance. And I would freak out thinking, I don't remember thinking that. I, I, I don't, I don't think I said that. I wonder if I'm really saved. And I'm sure some in this room have done the same, have struggled with your salvation. It was only for me personally until I began to really see the doctrines of limited atonement that I began to rest. Because the day of atonement is for you, my friend, if you struggle. Because God drove the point home. It's got nothing to do with you. There is literally nothing you can bring You have no goat good enough. There's nothing you can bring that actually is an acceptable sacrifice. But Jesus did. You have to rest in the work of Christ. You have to repent. You have to believe. But that's all you can do. You have to rest in the fact that there is nothing you bring that accomplishes your redemption. Nothing. Once you grapple with that and begin to understand that and realize that, as God said, as, as the author here says at the end, for he who promised is faithful. You think Jesus is going to let you down? He's holding his blood as the sacrificial the proper sacrifice for the atonement for your sins. And he sits down at the right hand of God. He's done. He accomplished it. We have a Redeemer who actually redeems. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he did. And if you struggle with that today, rest. Rest in the fact that it's not you who accomplished the redemption It's just, it was Jesus. You just have to believe. Next week, we'll wrestle that last part of this, understanding what happened about that second goat 
as they headed out in the wilderness. And what happened with those ceremonial after, the ceremonies after that? We'll conclude this little two-part series in atonement. But for this week, if you are one of those, I encourage you. And if not, if you don't struggle with this area, great. Still worship him and be grateful to him for the work that your high priest, Jesus, who brought the only truly acceptable sacrifice into God's presence, did for you. You and I have redemption. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we are grateful. But I am sure we are not grateful enough. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief, that you are our salvation. Drive that point home in our hearts over and over. Give us assurance of our salvation so that we may prompt others, as the writer of Hebrews says, to good works as well. Lord, thank you for our redemption. Thank you for being our high priest and acting on our behalf, for no man comes to the Father but by you. And we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.